Good morning. Our first reading from the Old Testament, our selected verses from Nehemiah chapter 8. And to commence with, I'm going to start from verse 1. So, Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 1. All the people gathered together in the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read it from it. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And now going to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, And all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And now verses 8 to 10. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink sweet wine, and send portions of them to those whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Amen. These words are taken from uh, Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place 
where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I read recently um, Michelle Obama's autobiography, Becoming. Some of you may also have read it here, as it's a, a popular seller. It's a good, a strong story of the development of a woman brought up in a loving and caring family in an area of Chicago that was beginning to experience change. A woman who is driven to succeed at school, at college, and in the business of law. Then she meets and marries a man who is equally driven to support those who are less advantaged, less well resourced in their communities whose determination to serve takes him to the White House. In many respects, Michelle's story is more enjoyable than Barack's and certainly is better reading. Michelle tells the story of her early influences, the principles and motivations of people whom she has trusted, who have been her friends and counsellors, how she has worked through opposition and frustrations, including the anger directed at those who even thought to query a husband's very birth for political reasons. There are the pressures and compromises of living a celebrity life as a family in the public gaze. It's the sort of writing that we have come to expect of modern autobiographies or indeed biographies, where we learn about the subject, their roots, their character-forming experiences, their aspirations, their motivations, their failures, and their joys. We read, as much as they will let us, of a rounded life. Jesus appears out of nowhere with no backstory. Only two of the Gospels carry those stories associated with his birth that we retell at Christmas, and there are only fragmentary episodes of his early life as he grew up. Biography is not the concern of the evangelists. Here, as Luke develops his story, Jesus comes as one in the crowd, who gather around John the Baptist, this revivalist preacher. One of the many seekers who go out into a wilderness place 
daring to hope for truth and renewal. Then there is a reference to Jesus' growing reputation as a preacher in his own right. But the reader is left to their imagination to reflect on the sort of childhood experiences that Jesus might have had, how he comes to connect with God, his understanding of his fellow Jews, of the impact of the law and the prophets upon his motivations, and of the rituals of the long, far distant temple and the near-at-hand synagogue. All of these are simply not there in detail. But at this moment and this day, we find Jesus given the synagogue place of honour. Surely they must have recognised that this was one of their own. He is asked to read the scriptures, a respect accorded presumably on prior acquaintance. Jesus picks up the written scroll and does not sort of search through for something that fits. Does not have, as it were, standing there a blinding revelation, but comes upon a scripture that he's obviously found before to be meaningful. Not just that something he shares in worship with his fellow Jews in the synagogue, but rather something that manages to sum up his whole life outlook, preparing for when he can fully identify with this God who is good news, for whom the people have been waiting. And we can perhaps imagine the drama as finishing his speaking, there is a quiet where you could almost hear a pin drop. Today, this is fulfilled. We know from historians and theologians that at the time of Jesus, there were many contemporary strands of thinking about what was God doing with the people. There was a popular expectation around the time of Jesus, still for a hero king who would come and expel the foreigners, rekindle the sense of self-determination and national pride, take back the borders. That was the hope that came to them from the past, even if time after time it had not rung true. And faced with the military might of the Romans, this surely was what only God could do to do something that would honour the past promises to the people. There had been so-called saviours come and go. Many had faded into insignificance. Most had been snuffed out as political threats. Jesus takes a different direction. His experience of life, his explorations, his listening, his prayers have led him to identify fully with God who brings good news of release, of wholeness, of fairness, of generosity of living for all. So completely does Jesus understand his identity with God that he seizes upon the prophet's words as a sort of mission statement. 
This is what God is about. This is what I embody. This is what I bring for you. Good news for the poor. Release for the captives. Recovery of sight for the blind. Letting the oppressed go free. It is the year of the Lord's favour. Remember, this was good news for those who usually found themselves on the edges of life. On the downsides, exposed to the control of others. Vulnerable to forces that they did not wholly understand. Ordinary people coping with the business of life. To these, says Jesus, God does not come as a petty bean counter obsessed by detail of ritual and sacrifice. God does not come to those who could afford to show piety or buy influence. God did not come to those with a clean record, but to inspire all with compassion, justice, and a sense of liberation. Even less did Jesus see God as only interested in the spiritual strands of life, indifferent to the way daily living was held. So Jesus comes as good news, where the experience and expectation taught the people that life would not be easy, where there were challenges to be faced, great uncertainty remained to be sure, but where God we waited to meet with the people and walk with them. Turn the clock back some hundreds of years and we find ourselves in the Old Testament at a place of discovery or rediscovery. The story goes how the people had somehow lost the book of the law in their many comings and goings. And then it had been found somewhere in the temple. It is, I suspect, as if we had lost Magna Carta and found it. And suddenly the people were reminded of their responsibilities and rights with God. In that reading from Nehemiah, we get something of the release and the excitement, the jubilation that it came, the public ceremony, the commitment, the opening up before God as people were reminded that God was with them and had been with them, that they belonged, they had history, and they could be confident in their God. They had hope. So picking the scroll up, Jesus reaches back into the story of the people of Israel. Indeed, echoes that go back before David or Isaiah into a community that understood what it meant to be powerless, in captivity, aware of the needs of those around them. The people of Israel were meant to be a people who knew what it was like to struggle for a place to live, to be threatened by forces within the community and outside, to be in the geopolitical terms, footballs between the big players of the region. Out of their experiences, out of their understandings of God, had come a concern for their neighbour. 
a place for strangers and outsiders in their community where vulnerable people were given respect and help. Jesus does not evoke a cosy nostalgia. Golden eras are never as wonderful as we thought they ought to be. But he appeals to this sense of a commonwealth of mutual support and care. He did not announce a sort of utopia where everyone was going to be the same, but that in a world where there were richer and poorer, powerful and vulnerable, lonely and integrated, that healthy community living demanded that all have their value and be recognised. Not because they had an independent claim on each other, not because this was a sensible way to organise, but because this reflected the very nature of God. God who had spoken to them over the years. It's the dream championed by the prophets who condemned the failures of the people to respond to God, to look after the people. It was the line to which John the Baptist belonged and with which, according to Luke here, Jesus identified in a public baptism. They're the grounding of his public ministry, proclaiming the goodness of God for the healings and teachings journey to the cross as he proves to be too troublesome for the powers that be Jesus is speaking to the people he lives in a context where the Romans are the military rulers where the Jewish authorities dare not afford political unrest yet the people yearn for God the religious is the political So Jesus is neither a political activist, nor a moral reformer, nor a spiritual revivalist. He does not build a political power base amongst the left behind or the dispossessed, nor gather around him a close inward-looking sect that keeps everyone else out. He does not incite to revolt. He offers an invitation to be part of what God is doing. His message invites anyone with ears to hear to respond to the liberating call of God. And the Gospels suggest something of the breadth of his audience and contacts. Jesus is concerned for the presence of God among the people and the impact it will make upon them. Even though, <coughs> excuse me, even though this passage has sometimes been called the Nazareth Manifesto, it sets out broad brushstrokes and not detailed activities. People are to catch the vision where they are and make it happen. Jesus brings no new political program, creates no new law, but offers the call to be people transformed by compassion. His message cannot be reduced to a spiritual box because it reaches out to change society wherever people take him seriously. And if we can say Jesus is not party political, nonetheless we can see that many subsequent activists and theorists have been challenged by his teachings to translate them into their own efforts to struggle for a better world, a juster world. And yet, all this said, 
Jesus dies a political execution. He defies easy classification because of the deeper revolution that he brings, a changed direction, a new hope, a life remade as women and men together, how us and them can become simply us. Insider and outsider join hands together. How the society of humankind can reflect the glory of God in community. And it troubles those who are enthralled to the old ways. The first section of the Declaration of the Principle of the Baptist Union, which I expect you have to heart and recite every day, states this. The risen Christ is the sole and absolute authority in all matters pertaining to faith and practice. It is Jesus who is our confidence. We gather because of the presence of the Spirit and the promise given in the Scriptures. It is Christ by the Spirit who enlivens our communities and inspires our witness and worship and service. Of course, Scripture and creed and confessions and covenants, the historical witness of Christians, all have their place. But without this Christ at the core, there is ever possible the risk of a self-centeredness lurking within our communities, where even the power of faith can be channeled towards a tribalism. My Jesus, my God, my community. When people fail to realise that as soon as one group claims to possess Christ, he slips through their fingers and they're left holding an idol, a plaster messiah. Our faith is not a matter of unthinking or emotional response alone. Human beings are creatures of mind and body and emotions, a complex blend of personality, culture, intellect. God engages the whole person. The pattern of Jesus is our pattern to explore the truth of God, to enjoy the fellowship of God's people, to reflect on our experience of the world. You perhaps caught an echo in both readings how what God is doing, the word that has been set down to express, is interpreted firstly by Ezra and then by Jesus to say, and this is your situation now. It is not just history. So church is to be a community that helps, or where people help the other. Learning, unlearning, and relearning as faith deepens and broadens, weaving the tapestry in a rich variety of colours and textures, the very stuff of life. Day by day, our prayers, our encounters, our conversations and joys and disappointments are the raw material from which Christian experience is forged. We are always disciples on the way. The people of God live in the everyday and are called to discipleship in this glorious and messy world. There are countless examples of men and women motivated to service by Christian convictions who have got in, stuck in and shaped their local, national or even international communities. 
is for us to ask with Dietrich Bromhofer the question, who is Jesus Christ for us today? For this is to ask what sort of world do Christians want to work towards and strive for? Luke tells us that Jesus sees God concerned for the way people build communities together. Communities that are good news for those on the edges. People disadvantaged. People who are vulnerable. Watch the screen, read the papers, listen to the conversations around you. We live in a complex and confusing set of circumstances where in our society long-trusted institutions and assumptions about identity are being challenged. What does it mean to be British? How do we see others? How do we form our opinions? How do we assess from the torrent of information what is true and what is not? How do we cope with difference? It is an uncomfortable and unsettling time to live through. And it does not take a talented observer to recognise that in our nations, the last three years have revealed what have been building for many years. That our nations are fractured by deep divisions in experience and expectation. Where some have great influence and some feel voiceless where age or wealth or education or class divide those who have from those who have not, where some struggle to make ends meet or go under, whilst others have more than they could possibly need. And some have been stigmatised, and some are under-resourced, and some whose memories have been engaged and hopes have diverged, and there's always been the siren call of a cosy nostalgia that marks the reality of the way ahead. Whatever happens on November the 1st, this will not disappear. And the communities of our nations will face this unpalatable truth. If there is going to be a building together for the common good, it will not be simple. Politicians glibly talk of bringing together those who are separate, of reconciling opposing views of the paradise that await those who stay the course. Each day we are offered words of empty rhetoric and vague optimism. But we know that any healing will need to be backed by genuine effort and cost. A willingness to learn an ability to see failings and a readiness to create differently. It will be a lengthy and one suspects painful process if it is to probe the depths of discontent and alienation. And the road to genuine harmony and respect will be marked by casualties. Surely in all of this the Church of Jesus Christ should be an active player. If we are convinced by the message of Jesus, we will pray it, talk it, listen to it, live it, and help others to realise that it lies within their grasp. Christians are a people rooted in reconciliation and hope, marked by the understanding of the costliness needed. Churches have begun to grapple with the reality of barriers and divisions caused by different theologies, church structures, and authority systems, even if it seems at times like one step forward, two steps to the side, and an occasional retreat. 
There is little doubt that any efforts to invite people to a journey where they explore their political and social identities and seek to build a new future will be met by many with opposition. Let the churches stay out of politics. Or a lack of enthusiasm. The right to be heard will have to be earned by sensitive and committed concern. And there will be some who reject any coming together. Those who thrive on social dislocation and mistrust and the resentment caused. Those who prosper while the vulnerable still bear the cost. Remember, it is after this synagogue moment of disclosure that Jesus was run out of town. There's a story about St. Teresa. We're finding that life was not easy for her complained in her prayers to God that it's so hard. Why do you make it so hard to be a follower? And God replies, I treat all my children like that. And the saint washably turned around and said, and that's why you have so few of them. It has been said that on occasions the churches have been tempted to pursue what is safe rather than what is right. Maybe now is the time to speak up boldly for what is right. Today, said Jesus, this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, we still hear his voice. Thanks be to God. We pray, God, for those who have recently received good examination results and who can plan for the future with excitement and hope. We pray for those who will be starting new jobs, new apprenticeships, new opportunities in their lives. We pray, too, for those who perhaps have not achieved as they hoped or had intended and need to find confidence for living. Hear us as we pray and put names and faces to those for whom we pray. We think of the world of politics that comes to us every day through television and media, of characters and of situations, the pressing problems that face us all. As the G7 meet, we would pray for wisdom and a sense of justice to prevail. And particularly we pray that the leaders of the world will not allow the Amazon to be wrecked for short-term gains against the long-term loss. We meet at a time of carnival of greenbelt, of leisure and relaxation on holiday. We give thanks for those who will be able to be restored and refreshed and renewed by the times they share together. People who will find new understandings, new friends, new possibilities and a freshness of life. Help us to celebrate the diversity that makes us human beings and whereby we can enrich one another.
We pray for the churches to which we belong, the churches and denominations in our country, as they seek to bear witness to Jesus Christ in difficult and challenging political times. In the midst of our perplexities, help us to hold on to basic truths of cooperation and appreciation and a respect for others, a desire for the well-being of our neighbours. May our combined efforts as Christian people to live out good news become a signpost along the way for travellers who have become confused in life. We pray for this church community, for the ministry of Simon and Dawn, for the activities that happen here week by week and day by day in the heart of a capital. For all who pass by or enter the doors, we pray that this place may be a community of help and refuge and joy. Where those seeking friendship will find it. Where those needing assistance will be helped. For those who feel alone and lonely will be assured of a welcome. And in this church community we'll pray for those who have been bereaved this week. For families with their sadness and their memories. We think of those who are away today and will be with us next week. We think of those who are not able because of age and infirmity to gather as once they used to do. We pray for those who come to the edges of this community, that they will hear and see something of the love of Jesus Christ for them, in word and in action. Hear us, God, as we bring our prayers. And as the stories and the faces and the people have become plain to us as we have prayed them, so help us to be, as we are able, the answers to the prayers that we have made. For we pray through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.